Thanks so much for joining us for the latest episode of Taking the Complex and Making It Simple, the Merlin Wealth Management Educational Podcast. Join us as Michael Merlin, founder of Merlin Wealth Management, and various friends and experts break down complicated financial topics to make them easy to understand. If you'd like more information about Merlin Wealth Management, please visit our website at rcm.rocco.com forward slash Merlin. And with that, here's founder of Merlin Wealth Management and private wealth advisor at Rockefeller Capital Management, Michael Merlin. Thanks, Tom, and uh, welcome everyone to another episode of Taking the Complex and Making It Simple. Uh, today, uh, I am here with uh, Adam Abramson and Adam Compton, and we are going to do a third quarter recap and also maybe a little bit of a year-end look forward uh, toward uh, uh, December 31st and then maybe a little bit into 2024. Um, as we talked about at the end of the second quarter, uh, we started to do these as a podcast. I used to, as many of you know, I used to write um, a, a, a quarterly piece that uh, we distributed, but uh, the feedback has been that we like the podcast format and, and we like it too. And so uh, we're doing a, a third quarter recap here today. Uh, before I get started uh, with that, I, I, I did want to share a great quote. Um, I know a lot of you've been reading nonstop in the news about things going on in Israel uh, and in the Middle East. And um, there's a wonderful quote that I read um, from Shimon Perez, who is former president of Israel. And it said, quote, if a problem has no solution, it may not be a problem, but a fact, not to be solved, but to be coped with over time. And uh, Perez was talking at, at, when he said that about uh, the conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis. And this was about 15 years ago that he, uh, that he said that. And I think it's a really interesting way to look at any problem, but, um, but, but certainly what's going on in Israel is, is, is catastrophic. There's, there's no words that can describe the unspeakable things that have happened to Israeli citizens and, uh, and, and the fact that this war is gonna go on you know, for a long time and it's gonna be bloody and violent. You know, just, just obviously hurts all of our hearts. And I know we sent a message out earlier in the month, uh, you know, kind of trying to, trying to, to do what we can and, and, and show our support for our friends in Israel, our friends who have family in Israel and our friends who have family in the IDF or in the Israeli government, and, and, and obviously we continue to do that. Um, but today's uh, topic obviously is about markets, and so I, I did think it was it was important to reiterate that while these conflicts are terrible and the human costs are are tragic, global conflicts like this tend to not have lasting effects on markets. Our previous experience has indicated that no matter the seriousness of the escalation, and we've seen plenty of serious ones. These, they're unlikely to have lasting impact on the US economy, fundamentals, or corporate profits. In fact, uh, you know, some, some investor almanac uh, data, some of you like that, from the start of World War II in 1939, that was obviously a horrible conflict on many levels, until it ended in, the late, in late 1945, the Dow was up, the Dow Jones was up a total of 50%, so more than a 7% compounded rate of return uh, while the war was going on. Um, and so, you know, while, Obviously, there is a ton of, of information out on social media, on in traditional media, financial media, and otherwise about all the terrible things going on in the world, the different conflicts, whether it's Ukraine or Israel, um, whether it's uh, other geopolitical uh, concerns. You know, typically these types of situations, it doesn't pay to take your eye off of your investment discipline and start just being a seller. Um, you know, weakness tends to ensue from some of these conflicts, really mainly because of emotion. And you know, those are times where 
uh, for us at least, we found great opportunity to find, uh, you know, to, to buy wonderful businesses at great prices. So um, with that being said, I think it's a great segue into the larger discussion, um, which is to recap the market action in the third quarter, you know, talk about what we see as major impacts on the market for the remainder of the year and into 24, and then to briefly discuss some year-end planning items. So um, to get started, I wanted to bring Adam Compton on first. Adam, how's it going? Good, good, Michael, thanks. Um, so, you know, outside of these global conflicts, it seems that the markets are, are being driven by some usual suspects, inflation, monetary and fiscal policy and corporate earnings. So let's take these one at a time. And for fun, let's kind of keep uh, President Perez's quote in our minds. Are these problems that have solutions or are these some of these problems, are the solutions a little harder to, to find? Okay. Perfect. Right, so let, let's start with inflation. I guess my first question is, would to you would be, is the Fed really done at this point? No, that's a great question. Obviously, the market's trying to figure that out. Um, and, you know, we've got Fed meetings that are that are going to deliver some of that information pretty quickly here. But, I mean, I to really boil it down, I think the Fed's pretty much done based on the data we see right now. Of course, the data can change. But, you know, given, as, as uh, our friend Mr. Powell likes to say, the long and variable lags, it really does take a while for rate hikes to dig into growth in the economy, which is what they're trying to do is slow down growth. Um, so they have the luxury to wait and see based on the aggressive ramp we've seen of rates with the 11 increases, you know, the, the, the most rapid pace of increases we've seen since the 1970s. So even if they had they were tardy on the start on tightening, um, you know, we think the aggressiveness of that ramp gives them the luxury of sort of waiting and see things how things play out at this point. What they don't want to do is start cutting or signaling cuts too soon based on the trajectory of inflation, which is a nice downward trajectory now versus levels, because we're not actually to target levels yet, right? We're still running at about 2x that. You know, I think what, what most people remember from the 1970s is the Fed had to play catch up. Uh, once Volcker showed up, you know, you had the new sheriff in town who finally created, you know, the environment to get inflation down. But he kept and he kept rates much higher than inflation for a very extended period afterwards to really squeeze it out of the economy. You know, if we were in a Volcker tightening right now, that would be the equivalent of having short-term rates in the eight to ten percent range, um, which would obviously feel a lot more pain than we've even seen right now. So we are getting off relatively easy um, if if this is, is sort of the end of the Fed's rate increases. But it, but it could pretend portend for higher for longer, which is sort of the the new uh, drumbeat that we're hearing. For sure, for sure. And, you know, there's still worries on, you know, inflation could keep high for a while, right? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I think it's amazing that those 11 consecutive rate hikes that you mentioned, you know, have essentially driven inflation down from 9% to about 3.7%, but that's still, you know, some distance from the Fed's target, as you said, which is 2%. So, you know, what are some of the things that you think are maybe keeping inflation either pescally higher than it should be, or, you know, is it just the fact that the Fed raised rate, I mean, we talked about this a lot on our last podcast, uh, but is it just because the Fed's raised rates so quickly that all those rate increases really haven't had a chance to be absorbed into the economy quite yet? Or could it yeah, be both? It's, it's a, yeah, the truth is always somewhere in between, right? So I think, you know, the things that are, you know, the likely suspects on keeping the Fed cautious here are definitely, at first I would say wages. Yeah. Um, you're still seeing wage growth in the four to five percent range. The Fed really needs that closer to three percent to get to a two percent sustainable inflation rate, right? Otherwise, corporate profits are all going to collapse because of, of wages outpacing GDP. 
Um, so they've got to, you know, they want wage growth to be positive and maybe a little bit higher than than target inflation, but they don't want it, you know, two x because that just creates math problems. So, you know, we got the jolts numbers this morning. Those have actually moved up for two months in a row. That's going to keep the Fed a little cautious on saying, "Hey, we're done. It's it's we've accomplished everything we want to accomplish." Probably the other thing is, you know, just energy, right? Because, you know, again, to use the '70s analog. Um, you know, instability in the Middle East and higher energy prices are part of what kept inflation high. And on some level, that's outside the Fed's control. So, you know, they're they're trying to sort of account for some risk there. So that that's something that they're going to keep an eye on for sure. Absolutely. Um, let's um, let's transition to corporate earnings, which obviously is something we 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 keep a, a very close eye on, certainly for our portfolio companies, but in general. And you know, one thing I thought was modestly positive um, was that I, I saw that um, it is estimated that year-over-year growth of earnings will be positive for the first time since the third quarter of 22. And so, um, you know, are we starting to see kind of a bottoming out process of earnings? Are margins starting to solidify? You know, is, does that is that sort of confirming our original thesis about a rolling recession? What, what, what are we seeing so far in earnings season this, this quarter, Adam? No, that's a great question. We're about two thirds of the way through. We've had 310 of the S&P 500 report. Um, so yeah, you're right. We're getting the first year over year increases in earnings since the third quarter of 2022. So far they're up about 2.9% year over year, which isn't blockbuster, but it's a heck of a lot better than going down year over year, right? Which is what we've really been experiencing over the last year. Yeah. Um, er- Earnings are beating to the upside, which is normal given typical sandbagging behavior by management teams. But what's interesting this time is it's not really being driven by revenues. Um, Revenues are only up about 2% year over year. It's really being driven by better cost controls. um, And that's what's really helping margins, right? I think, you know, post pandemic companies had pricing power, um, but then ultimately a lot realized they had sort of overinvested particularly the tech companies, which is, you know, where we've seen some benefits recently. Um, and by controlling costs better, they're getting much better earnings growth now, right? So if you look, and that really shows up in the sectors that are doing well, um, consumer discretionary earnings are up 53% year over year. That's driven by Amazon, who had earnings up 375% year over year, and that's skewing the numbers. But Amazon's a great example of, they added so much warehouse capacity during the pandemic because there was so much demand and then ultimately realized they had overdone it, right? Um, another great example there is the communication sector uh, where all the internet you know, companies tend to reside. Uh, earnings there are up 35% year over year. And that's, you know, that's the meta story with their earnings up 167% year over year because yes, they too overinvested you know, during the pandemic, hired a lot of people when everybody was, you know, worried that they wouldn't be able to ever find a good employee again, um, and then ultimately ended up paring back things. So they're getting a nice rebound in advertising revenue, but at the same time, you know, they've got really positive operating leverage. Absolutely. You know, it, it it's so interesting to me, you know, we we, we watch, uh, especially our portfolio companies, but we really, you know, we, we, we watch corporate America. And for the most part, the, the CEOs or the management teams of these companies are being incredibly thoughtful about the way that they're managing their businesses, right? And so, you know, you have an Amazon or you have a, you know, you have, you have a, a Meta, they, they, they're, they're almost held to a, 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 an unattainable standard, right? Like they're supposed to continue to make 
decisions with you know, they, they should have a crystal ball that tells them when when growth is going to slow they should have a crystal ball that tells them when they should hire and fire and you know it's almost like we expect that when something slows or something changes that somehow they're going to have sussed that out long before it happens but we all know reality i mean we we run a business our clients run businesses that's not how that's not how reality works a lot of times those things happen you see them coming you can't necessarily pivot completely away you get you get a little bit into the headwind and then you pivot, right? And, and that's what we would want management teams to do. So, you know, what's so interesting is during a time like this where people are concerned about valuation and where the market is and, you know, the, the value of the dollar and how much fiscal spending there's been, and we'll get to that in a minute. But, you know, when a company like an Amazon or or, or a company like, or any company, even a, a really good quality company that has historical, um, uh, has, has had positive historical performance, has had good management structure and good management results, when all of a sudden they say, oh, wait a second, you know, things are going to slow or we need to cut employees, you know, the market goes crazy. You know, analyst estimates get slashed. And, and it's just like you said before, there's sandbagging on one end, right, which is we want to beat. There's also like the, you know, Katie bar the door, which is, you know, someone comes out and says one bad thing and all of a sudden it's, you know, it's, it's the black death for everyone, right? And so, you know, I think what one of the things that we have to keep in mind and something that is good for our clients to understand is that in an environment like this, and, and we've been talking about uncertainty for a very long time. You know, we've been talking about the uncertainty around the pandemic. We've been talking about the uncertainty around inflation. We've been talking about the uncertainty now with geopolitical uh, events going on around the world. Uncertainty creates volatility, right? And volatility can create short-term emotional reactions, right? And so, you know, I think it's it, it's important that we talk a little bit, Adam, about you know how we how we interpret some of these results and the things that really drive us essentially like you know what what are the signals that we look for versus some of this noise that's really you know prevalent right now right now that's that's great a great way to lead into sort of what's important in our investing process right which is we really do try to look for companies that have long-term sustainable advantages we're not at, we, yes, we look at quarterly earnings, you know, you know that, you know, John Wagner and David North sit with me every quarter and look in detail at all the company's earnings. That's not because we really care about what they make in a given quarter, but we're just looking for clues on, are they sticking with a long-term trajectory that we would want to see a good quality business and a good quality management team go on, right? So we don't expect them to have crystal balls, but we do expect them to react to data and you know ultimately hopefully drive good long-term decisions so that's definitely the kinds of management teams we're looking for and the kind of business models we're looking for um and of course balance sheets that make that possible which you know we try to stay very focused on companies that have balance sheet flexibility um i i, I could agree with you more and, and and i'll i'll take it a step further maybe right here i know i know we said we, we would maybe do this um a little bit later but but i i think let's do this right here um, so I, I, I listened to an interview yesterday with Stanley Druckenmiller, who you know we all know, um, you know, can be somewhat of a of a downer when, when you when you when you talk about the country and when you talk about the markets. Um, and but I do think that 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 he has a very strong opinion that I happen to agree mostly with as it relates to fiscal policy. And you know, one of the things he said. Uh, was and I I I I I thought this was actually really a, a good exchange. So one of the things he said in the interview yesterday was that stock investing will be hard for the next ten years, specifically because the market valuation or the you know the the PE multiple on the market, if you will, will have to come down 
as the government, quote unquote, he said this, not me, stop spending like drunken sailors and rates normalize at a higher absolute level. So like, that was essentially his his shot across the bow, which was with forget all the other things going on in the world. The biggest concern we have right now, and again, something we can talk about as to whether it's a, a solvable problem. I mean, the problem continues to get bigger and bigger is fiscal policy. And his point was that at some point we're going to have to deal with it. He thinks that that's going to come sooner rather than later. And when it does, it's going to be a headwind for stock investors for a really long time. He said five to 10 years. But when, when the interviewer pressed him on that, he, he sort of augmented his statement and said that really he was talking about the market itself, not about companies or stocks. And his quote was this, I think there'll be great companies and great stocks. It'll be a stock picker's market. A lot of people um, made money uh, in the stock markets of the 1970s, um, but it's not gonna be like surfing with a hurricane at your back. You're gonna really have to do hard work. And so to me, that wasn't as much a statement as saying you, you can't invest in stocks. That was more of a statement saying that you can't just blindly invest in the market, right? And so uh, clearly that that type of an environment, like we were just talking about, benefits the kind of the foundational work that we do, which is a quality-based kind of bottoms-up philosophy um, in that environment. D d does, that, does that make sense to you? No, 100%, right? Because um, as he was referencing, you know, the fiscal issues have follow on effects in the real real world, right? <laughs> Not just in Washington inside the Beltway bubble. You know, the stuff he's talking about is really important, right? You're going to have interest. The interest burden is going to eat up higher and higher portions of the federal budgets. Um, it's going to it's going to hit about 20 to 30 percent of budgets over the next few years with annual interest payments are going to hit over a trillion dollars pretty quickly. Um, those are big numbers, right? To me, I view it as like the equivalent of a college kid borrowing on credit cards, um, you know, and the interest payments will eat you alive and take up more and more of your budget over time. You're, you're going to have a hard time, you know, buying your can of soup and, and your, you know, notebook to get through at school. So, you know, I'm not chicken little. I don't think we're Argentina. You know, we still have a robust economy, so I don't think the dollar's collapsing next week. But over the long term, that kind of deficit load's going to squeeze out the productive sectors from the debt market. and It's going to slow economic growth and limit potential. The nice thing in what we do is, um, you know, having spent 20 years analyzing banks, which are super levered companies, I'm pretty adverse to leverage and the companies we own. We want sustainability. We want to not get wiped out in down cycles. And, you know, if you look across our three strategies, two of the three, our companies in the aggregate have net cash positions. So they actually make more money, um, you know, just off of interest rates going up because they're getting a yield. I mean, look at Tesla, they're, they're gonna be hitting a, a billion uh, quarter in interest income pretty soon here. So, you know, there's, these are the kind of companies we wanna own because you gotta have the balance sheet flexibility to make it through the down cycles. Um, and, you know, we, you look at the the benchmarks and the indices there's a lot of leverage in a lot of those companies there's a big portion of those companies we're never going to own because you and i and our team will sit in our our investment meeting and say hey i like this company or I like the trends and then we'll look at the balance sheet and say yeah but you know this isn't a company that could necessarily make it in a more adverse um, environment because of the kind of leverage they have so that's the kind of stuff we're looking at um, we're trying to build the portfolios for the long term um, and like we always tend to say is, you know, can I put this in my retirement account, come back in a decade and be pretty sure it's going to be still there and, and making good money. And that's really how we try to think about it. Uh, to, to take that kind of back to where we were talking about before, with which is 
know, the quality of the companies we own. I think whether it's China or whether it's geopolitical issues or whether it's what's going on right now, you know, in the U.S. on with fiscal issues. You know, I, I think one thing we've been very clear about is that the state of the market or the state of the world doesn't change the kind of companies we look for, right? The companies that we look for are companies that can sustain growth with high returns for a long time, whether that's five years, 10 years, 20 years, whatever the case may be. And we like the fact that most of them, especially because of what Adam said, which is that they are not generally beholden to the debt markets, that they have the ability to thrive no matter what's happening around them. And that's that's interesting. We saw that play out during the pandemic. You know, there were a lot of companies we own that, that while it was a terrible time, were able to easily pivot and thrived during that period. So, you know, one of the things I think that's important, and and, and again, I want to I want to put a few more exclamation points on the fiscal policy piece, but I do think it's important to, to remind everyone that when times are uncertain, like they are now, and like they have been even last year in 22, you know, emotional regulation is vital, right? We, you know, that's our job. Like we're, we're, you know, we are paid to keep, keep our emotions in check and to hold ourselves accountable for making sure that, as I said earlier, we're trying, we're distinguishing the signal from the noise. And right now there's a lot of noise, you know, for our clients, for our friends, for our colleagues, it's not as easy, right? And, and I think that is the, that is part of the value that having a good financial advisory relationship brings, right? It, it's especially at times like this, because it, it, it sometimes it's hard. You know, you, you you could you could have walked away for a month, you know, and not looked at the market from September to October, you know, and seen a significant change, you know, to adapt to the downside in your asset values or portfolio values or whatever the case may be. But that's very much in a microcosmic box, right? Like if you look at what's happened from January one till now, markets are still, you know, solidly higher. So, you know, I, I think it's really easy to react in a vacuum, but, you know, the foundation of, of our investment philosophy and our advisory work, you know, is to leverage our team's strengths and our diverse experience. And that's what lets us kind of keep emotion out of it. You know, and, and the other thing is, I don't think we're afraid to, to, to understand different perspectives. And also, to step back and say, are we, are we, do we have a blind spot? Is there something that we're missing? Um, and I think we do that consistently, whether it's before we make an investment or whether it's before we make a strategic recommendation to a client. And I just think that's the culture of the business we have, which is we, we constantly question, we, we foster constructive dialogue. And you know, those are the attributes to me that have led in the past and will continue to lead in the future to us helping people make the best decisions with their portfolios and you know in their larger strategic discussion so i won't get off the soapbox now and uh, let's go back for a second to fiscal policy adam you know it seems like of the three things we've talked about inflation corporate earnings and now fiscal policy it is hardest to see a long-term solution to the fiscal policy issue right as you mentioned you know you talked about a college kid uh picking up credit card debt or accumulating credit card debt i read that the interest on the debt in the United States is now up to $800 billion annually. That's just the interest on the debt. That seems woefully unsustainable. So what happens next? You know, I mean, obviously there's gotta be a period of potentially austerity somewhere in here, but but, but what, does that, what does that look like? How painful do we think that might be? 
that <laughs> I don't even know how to answer that question. Um, it's the what I mean, I guess the real issue I would go back to on this, like especially is like how does this impact investing, right? Because that's what we're focused on is ultimately you're crowding out the productive part of the economy, right? As the government spends the government spending money on interest is the most non-productive spend that you're going to get from government, which frankly isn't a high hurdle, right? The government is never the best spender. Um, and interest is just an absolute negative burden. There is no positive outcome to it. And this doesn't even address paying down the absolute principal, right? Like this is right. just trying to cover the nut on interest. Right. So it, it will be a drag on the economy. It will take away from where money can be spent elsewhere, both in government budgets, but also what I'm more worried about is the private economy. You know, if you can get out, if you could go out and buy a government bond at 5%, you know, maybe you don't want to go out and, and buy a risky corporate bond or even some equities, right? Because 5% guaranteed return, you know, ain't that bad. Like classic example of that is, you know, go to Brazil where, you you know, historically you could buy government bonds for, you know, anywhere from 10 to 20%. It was very hard for corporations in Brazil to get funding for a long time because, you know, people could buy, get risk-free rates at attractive returns. We don't want to be in that position where, the government has to borrow so much, it's crowding out the rest of the real economy. I, I think that's a great response. You know, I also think that, you know, unless something dramatically changes, the idea of when fiscal, the, the, the government focuses on its fiscal challenges will probably become, be, be because of some sort of crisis, right? The last time, you know, we've seen, last couple of times we've seen real fiscal uh, discipline. Once was when, uh, you know, many, many, many decades ago when when it was there was a fear that the Social Security Trust Fund was going to go bankrupt. And so you know, there were some fiscal curbs put into place, which ultimately ended up benefiting that program and also ended up benefiting the market, I think, because I think some of those fiscal decisions were rewarded with a lot of what you said, more spending on things that are productive for GDP, more things that are productive for, for spending for consumers. You had a similar issue. Uh, you know, when Bill Clinton came to office and, you know, he decided to focus on balancing budgets and, you know, we saw what that did. You know, we thought that that led to one of the greatest productivity decades in the history of the country. So, you know, I, unfortunately, I think it's something negative that's going to lead to a crisis where the government has no choice but to face some fiscal discipline. But ultimately, I think that fiscal discipline will inure the benefit of the economy, strengthen it, which there are two for will make a better environment for corporate America and for and for uh, those working in corporate America to, you know, to 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 thrive. Absolutely. All right. So um, before we get to uh, a, a couple of strategic questions for Adam Abramson, I wanted to end Adam Compton with you on this segment. Just uh, let's just recap real quick. So the S&P um, for the quarter for the third quarter was down about three point three percent. And I think our strategies, whether it's, you know, uh, ink to or an era, we're, we're, we're down somewhere between 2.7 and 3.8% in the, in the quarter. So, you know, not, not a great quarter by any, by any dynamic. Um, year to date, though, uh, I think the S&P is still up about 10%. So, uh, you know, I, I don't want to lose that context. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, the three strategies, kind of, you know, what, what kind of, what were the, what have been what have been positive contributors for this year? What have been sort of negatives? Where are we from a cash and hedging standpoint? And kind of how do you, how are you looking at 
uh, you know, the rest of this year and maybe into early next year for the strategies? Yep, great question, Michael. Um, so, you know, let's start off with the hedging aspect of it, right? Because we do, we try to pick the good companies. We try to pick the best quality companies. We do keep an eye on what's going on with valuations and overall macro impacts that we've spent a lot of the last few minutes talking about. And we try to roll that into, okay, how do we position, besides owning great companies, what else do we do with the portfolios? One thing we will do um, is hold higher levels of cash. And if pricing is attractive, we will buy index puts to try to protect against downside, right? So that really cost us during the first half of the year while, while stocks were running up. You know, that obviously tends to help us when rates are, when, when the markets are going down, right? So that helped us across all three of the portfolios in the third quarter. We're running about a 25% notional hedge off of index puts across the three portfolios. And then cash levels are sort anywhere from five to uh, 10, 11% right now. So uh, again, across the three portfolios. So we're running at pretty conservative, but still getting pretty good returns, right? So um, our new air portfolio is up 20% year to date. Um, dynamic core is up 11%, pretty much you know spot on with the S&P, even with the hedging going on in there. Um, and sustainable incomes up about 5%, which doesn't sound great, but, you know, that's where we tend to own, you know, the closest we'll get to sort of value type names, which are more mature companies. Um, and if you look at that, you know, the Russell, the Russell 1000 value uh, index is actually down year to date. So we're even really happy with the performance there, even though it's quote unquote only 5%, right? So, you know, pretty happy with how things are going, particularly given that we've stayed pretty conservatively positioned. If you look at companies that have tended to help us, um, some real outstanding ones this year, uh, like Novo Nordisk is sort of the, the slam dunk obvious one um, in sustainable income. Um, that stock's done really well, up about 50% year to date. I'm sorry, about 40% year to date, 43%, 44%. And, you know, really reflecting the, the growth in their um, both diabetes and, and weight treatments. Um, it's been an interesting story, too, though, because we've had a lot of other stocks that, you know, are medically related. And everybody seems to be assuming that every, every overweight person in the world is going to be taking, you know, Novo Nordisk products in the next six months because you've seen a lot of really big stock movements off of those. Right. So. You know, the, the positives out of Nova Nordisk partially got offset by some negatives um, in stocks like Dexcom, which is the biggest provider of constant glucose monitors for diabetes patients. Um, and that stock really got hit hurt, hurt, hit hard off of, you know, worries that somehow people wouldn't need diabetes treatments anymore. Um, and, you know, ironically, Dexcom gets almost all its revenues from type 1 diabetes, which is a genetic issue, not an overweight issue. Um, you know, it could affect their long-term opportunity set to some degree, but again, you kind of have to assume everybody in the world gets access to uh, Novo Nordisk's GLP-1 products and or some of the competition, right? So, you know, that, um, if you look at some of the other medical technology companies, it's been pretty broad spread weakness across those. Um, and, you know, like Intuitive Surgical got hit a lot earlier this year, though it's rebounded some recently. Um, so names like that have gotten hurt off of that same issue, which is, gee, is everybody in the United States going to lose weight over the next two years? And what are all the impacts, right? Um, you know, other positive contributors in our portfolio, obviously this year we've gone to NVIDIA. You know, we bought that back in 2018 when it really trade, traded down um, off of the slowdown um, in cryptocurrencies because their chips were being used for processing uh, cryptocurrency transactions and verifications. 
Um, and we saw that as an opportunity to get long-term exposure to AI. You know, we weren't expecting a huge boom in AI that we've seen this year, but we were expecting that to sort of accrue to us as owners over the long-term. Um, so obviously we've gotten a lot of that this year with the NVIDIA shares being up 186%, um, which is a crazy high number. Um, that said, the the earnings growth have been the closest thing to I've seen to real blowout numbers in a long time, um, and they're clearly the leader in the sector. So um, NVIDIA has been a big contributor. Meta, the rebound in the shares there this year as they've gotten, you know, a little religion around cost control. That's been really helpful, too. Nice. Awesome. Um, all right. So uh, let's uh, let's take the remaining few minutes that we have, and I'd like to bring Adam Abramson back in. Uh, Adam, so you know, I think a question we get asked a lot, um, kind of spewing our, our discussion now toward asset allocation more than just uh, you know stock portfolios and performance um, or macro, uh, but, but, but there, there, there have been a lot written about this 60-40 portfolio, right? I, I think uh, you know, for a long time, you know, that was sort of the, if you, were, if, if you, if you weren't sure, 60-40 portfolio was probably the, the the straightest down the middle choice for your portfolio. So so 60% equities, 40% fixed income, sort of a time-tested strategy. Um, but you know, over the last several years, over maybe the last decade even, you know, the 60-40 portfolio hasn't really performed the way that it had performed in the past. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and and kind of talk about how that's how that's impacted our thinking around asset allocation and and how we've uh, kind of managed through that? Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's the last two years specifically for kind of the 60-40 portfolio have been unique in that, you know, uh, historically when, you know, stocks go through a challenging time, bond, uh, bond yields go down, so bond prices go up, which help cushion an investor's portfolio. The last two years specifically uh, have been a change to that, dynamic where you've had both stock and bond prices move in the same direction. Um, and so that normal cushion hasn't been there. And then the question becomes, so is the traditional 60-40 portfolio or that kind of balance down the middle portfolio, as, as Michael, as you just said, is, is that something, uh, is that dead at this point? And I th and the answer probably is is no, right? It, it means you, know, you have to be more nimble in terms of allocation and investments and how you build a portfolio out, like we were talking earlier. Um, but there's still, you know, the the case for a combination of stocks, bonds, and, and some other investments still makes sense. Look, right now, one of the big changes we've seen over the past 15 years is that for for a long period of time, you know, there was no interest or very little interest to be earned on cash or bonds. That has changed dramatically. You know, now. Mm -hmm. You know, now, as Adam Compton said, you know, cash is earning close to 5%, assuming you're putting in the right places. And bond yields, especially very recently, have gone, longer-term bond yields have gone back up. And so, you know, we're seeing an increase in income uh, for investors, which is a nice problem to have. And so, in that sense, higher rates are not a problem. The only problem is when, when rates rise rapidly, that is when bond portfolios get hurt because prices go down fairly, fairly quickly. For our clients, you know, we own uh, individual bonds. And so for those bonds, assuming the company or municipalities still in business, uh, uh, investors get their interest semi-annually. 
and you also get your principal back uh, in full when the bond matures. Um, you know, one of the things we've been looking at recently is, you know, cash or cash or short-term bonds earns attractive returns. At what point do you go ahead and lock in those higher returns by owning longer-term bonds, knowing that at some point it, when the Fed starts to change course, those short-term rates will drop and potentially drop fairly quickly. So that's something from an allocation standpoint we're constantly looking at and adjusting now. And the other thing we've done over the years is, looking at investments, alternative investments, investments in real assets that can generate returns that are not necessarily correlated with the stock or bond market. So it's it's being nimble, it's being able to adjust, making tactical changes and and you know skating to where the puck is going, not where it's been. Absolutely. And 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 I think uh you know we we didn't spend a lot of time in the earlier segment talking about fixed income, but I think you you hit the nail on the head. I, I think our our marching order, our mandate for the last year really has been to to extend duration um, in our in our bond portfolios as our clients have seen having a very short duration while interest rates were very low was helpful um, but i think now that interest rates are rising uh, i think your point is well taken which is that uh, they will not rates will not be this high forever and uh, even if they're higher for longer it gives us just more time to lock in some of those juicier yields for a longer period of time so I think that's a I think that's a great point. Uh, so so let's um, let's turn for a few minutes to some year-end planning items. Obviously, it's today is November first. Amazingly, the it's sixty days left in the year. Um, what are some of the things, Adam? That that we, I, I know we've been talking about with clients uh, right now: uh, qualified charitable distributions, uh, required minimum distributions, and then you know this year maybe for the for the first time in a little while we may have some you know, tax loss harvesting opportunities. So you want to talk about those three things uh, real quick and then uh, and then we'll we'll go on from there. Sure. So yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll touch on tax loss harvesting first. So as part of our, uh, our team's process, uh, and this has been the case for the past two decades, you know, we always go through our portfolios and see where there's opportunities to potentially take losses to offset gains over the course of the year. You know, for a few years or a number of years, there was very few losses, which is a nice problem to have, but increased volatility over the past few years has led to more opportunities to, to offset gains with losses. Now, it's in, ex extremely important for us that those changes, those uh, investment changes need to make sense both from an investment standpoint as well as, as a tax standpoint. So it doesn't mean we always realize every loss we have. Um, but it's important to reiterate that for us, you know, this is something we do proactively. We're not actually waiting for clients to, to come and talk to us about that. So that's something that, that has gone on already and will continue to for, for the rest of the year. Um, in terms of distributions from retirement accounts, um, you know, clients that are over, and, and it's been a little bit of a moving target, um, but clients that are over 72 or 73 now are take, or have, have to take required minimum distributions from the IRA. Um, those are taxable distributions that the IRS has said, you were able to put in money tax deferred, tax deductible when it went in. At some point in your lifetime, we would like to tax that money. And so that, that age right now is 73. Also what's required is for those people who have inherited IRAs from, a, from someone other than a spouse, they are required to take distributions. Now, if the, if the person who's deceased passed away before 2020, the inherited uh, owner takes distributions over the course of their lifetime. 
if the deceased passed away after uh, January 1st, 2020, uh, those distributions have to happen by the end of year 10. So that's something we also uh, proactively work with our clients to get done. Um, but one of the unique uh, planning items around uh, retirement accounts are, is in the last uh, eight years or so, the IRS has allowed uh, uh, people over the age of 70 and a half to, to do qualified charitable distributions from their IRAs. And what that means is that you can give money directly to charity from your IRA. It counts towards your required distribution. And while you don't get a tax deduction, that is money that is then not included as taxable income for the year. Um, this is a very good planning tool, especially as the standard deduction um, has gone up significantly. So uh, clients filing jointly have a little under 28,000 of a standard deduction. And now a lot more people fall into that categories using the standard deduction because their, uh, their SALT deductions, their state and local income taxes, which is, includes property taxes, are capped at $10,000. So it's a way for people who are using the standard deduction to essentially get a benefit from giving to charity, um, and that means not having that money included in taxable income. Um, it also has some added benefits that lowering your adjusted gross income uh, determines how much you pay in Medicare Part B premiums. It, it potentially changes the uh, when someone hits the 3.8% surtax on that investment income. So there are other benefits. Um, a few important things to, to keep in mind. One is for qualified charitable distributions. The distribution has to go directly to a charity. It cannot go to a donor advised fund or a private foundation. The second thing to keep in mind is when you make a qualified charitable distribution, the 1099-R, which is the tax reporting document you get at the end of the year from your IRA, doesn't explicitly indicate that there was a charitable distribution made so that it's, it's on the taxpayer to alert their accountant uh, to let them know that uh, that they made qualified charitable distributions and and how much. Um, the other unique thing is people over 70 and a half can make charitable distributions in their IRA. They don't have to necessarily wait uh, until they're 73 at this point when they they're having these required minimum distributions. So a lot to a lot to take in there. We've talked to a lot of clients about it, but obviously reach out to us if there's further questions or, or planning opportunities around that. Absolutely. I, so so um, I know we're running up on time, so let, let's um, let's close there. Um, the only thing I will tease is, uh, you know, in line with some of those year-end planning items, a, a bigger discussion that we seem to be having with a lot of client families these days are, are uh, deeper discussions about estate planning. And, and a lot of that is around the fact that, um, Adam, as you said, there were some moving targets with RMDs and you know and and the and the qualified charitable distribution as well. Um, there is a moving target right now with the estate tax exemption, right? That exemption is set to reset um, in January of 2026. And so um, we're going to do our next podcast. Um, we're going to re. I, I know the second podcast we ever did was on estate planning, kind of on a general level. But I think we're going to do a specific one um, next month. Uh, on uh, estate planning, specifically around strategies for people to consider, you know, heading into 2024 and 2025, where uh, you know there's there's sort of some significant decisions that may need to be made ahead of a of a tax law change. So, 
um, just like with this, you know, we'll, we, we want to stay ahead of it and, and, and kind of try to give the best advice we can to our clients. So with that, I'll, I'll thank both the Adams for, for joining me for this uh, third quarter recap podcast. And uh, we'll see everybody on the uh, on the next podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Taking the Complex and Making It Simple, the Merlin Wealth Management Educational Podcast. For more information on Merlin Wealth Management, please visit our website at rcm.rocco.com forward slash Merlin. Please stay tuned for an important legal disclaimer. This recording is provided for informational purposes only and is not an offer to buy or sell or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any security or to participate in any investment strategy and should not be interpreted to constitute a recommendation with respect to any security or investment plan. The views and opinions expressed are solely those of the presenters as of the date of this recording may not be current and are subject to change and are general in nature. Rockefeller Capital Management has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Rockefeller Capital Management and may differ from the views and opinions of other departments or divisions of Rockefeller Capital Management and its affiliates. Rockefeller Capital Management is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. The information is not individualized. You should review any planned financial transactions or arrangement that may have tax, accounting, or legal implications with your personal professional advisors. Rockefeller Capital Management does not guarantee the accuracy or reliability of the information provided in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. No investment strategy can guarantee profit or protection from loss. Future results may vary substantially from past performance. Investing involves risk, including a risk of loss. This recording may not be copied, reproduced, or distributed in whole or in part for any purpose without prior written consent. Rockefeller Capital Management is the marketing name of Rockefeller Capital Management LP and its affiliates. Merlin Wealth Management is part of Rockefeller Financial LLC, a broker-dealer and investment advisor duly registered with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, Member Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, and Securities Investor Protection Corporation. The registrations and memberships mentioned in no way imply the SEC has endorsed the entities, products, or services discussed herein. Additional information is available upon request.